Our reading this morning comes from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text this morning. I just pray, Lord, that you would teach us through your Holy Spirit to love you with all of our our heart, soul, and might. That we might turn from our sinfulness, Lord, and and look to you alone as the God who, who saves us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, that we might be encouraged to share the gospel with those around us this morning. And Father, that we go into our neighborhoods and workplaces and schools and every other area of our life and just be a light to the love that you have shown us through your son, Jesus. And so I pray all this in your name. Amen. I want you to imagine with me for a minute what it would look like if your boss turned with their whole heart to love Jesus with with everything they had. You know, what would the atmosphere at your office start to look like? What would your staff meetings uh, become? How would the conversation at at the, you know, proverbial water cooler type place uh, change? Or or what would it look like? What would it look like if if your teachers or, or your kids' teachers turned with their whole heart to loving Jesus? How would would the prayerful intercession that they had for their students uh, begin to just transform the schools that they're a part of? What would the classroom be like if this sort of thing happened? What would it look like if moms and dads around the city of Vancouver just began wholeheartedly serving Jesus? What would bedtime routines start to look like? What would discipline become? What kind of place would the home be if if this sort of thing happened? Or what would our neighborhoods look like if just a few homes around the the block started committing to loving God wholeheartedly? What would it look like if the leaders of our nation repented uh, of sin and just committed the entirety of their lives to serving the Lord their God? What would it look like if the prime minister had an encounter with Jesus and did everything in his power to love God with his whole heart, with his whole soul, and with all of his strength? What cultural idols would start to be abolished and torn down? What would change in the platform? How would the nation be affected by this kind of thing? What would it look like? What would it look like for people to turn with their whole heart, soul, and might to loving God? Interestingly, we're we're given a story, a picture of this sort of thing happening in the Bible. If you flip open your Bibles to 2 Kings 22, we're going to find a story there of King Josiah. 
Now, Josiah was a king in Israel, and, and one day he, he sent one of the priests in his sort of under his care to go to the temple and just take care of some administrative duties. And as this guy's there, he, he finds the book of Deuteronomy. Now, this is huge. You know, it would be like us uh, not having the Bible and then just sort of suddenly finding one. So the priest, he like picks it up and he brings it back to the king and, and he reads it for him. And when Josiah hears God's word read, he is so grieved. He's so convicted of his sin, of Israel's sin, that he literally just starts tearing his clothes off and, and praying to God. See, Josiah is immediately transformed by this word that he hears, and he's repentant for Israel's sin to the point where he even starts kind of issuing decrees saying, like, tear down the altars, remove the idols. He actually becomes enamored with this book, and, and he wholeheartedly turns to obedience uh, to the words he finds in there. And as a result of all of this, the, the, the faith of Israel begins to flourish again. Josiah, he leads this great revival and reform in Israel that, that transformed the nation's life. And after all this stuff that Josiah does, this is what we read about him in the Bible. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. Now, the reason I wanted to bring up the story of Josiah is because the passage that I just read is actually a quotation from our text this morning. You see, Josiah's faithfulness is measured by the passage that we're examining today. Josiah, he was evaluated in the end as someone who loved God with all of his heart, soul, and might. And that's the whole point of our text in Deuteronomy this morning. You see, in our text, we find the focal point and standard of faithfulness to God in Scripture. Jesus even calls this uh, the great and first commandment. No matter where we go, we cannot get around the importance of this text. We need to wrestle with it, and we need to take it seriously. We need to deal with the reality of our own hearts in light of what we read in this text this morning. So all I want to do is I want to look at what it means to love God with heart, soul, and might. My big point is nothing fancy this morning. It's just this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And I've got three points for us today. Why love, how love, and what love does. So we're just going to ask each of these questions to our big point. Why love God? How do we love God? And what should we do with our love for God. So let's get started and, and let's look together at our first point. Why love? Why should we love God above all else? Well, I think we get our answer in the first verse of our text this morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Why should we love God with everything we have? Because God is one. Now, I realize at first that this doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, why would a number be so important for our love to God? But, but hear me out on this, okay? Because I think it'll make sense after a little bit of explanation. First, we need to understand what is meant by the word one. And I think we can understand this word in two ways. We can understand one as saying that God is, is one in his being or in his essence, But we can also understand it as saying that God is one in an exclusive sense, that he's the only God. Now, I need to acknowledge here that that talking about God as being one in his being or his essence is, is a little bit lofty and it can be a little bit confusing. But all I mean by that language is that God is literally one, right? He's not divided into multiple parts, but he's literally one, one thing. And if he's one in this way, that means that he doesn't change. If God has one will within himself and one purpose, that means that the will and purpose of God revealed throughout Scripture from beginning to end, from front to back, has always remained the same. And it's the same even today. It means that his promises never go unfulfilled, and they're never forgotten by him. We see an example of this sort of oneness in Malachi 3 verse 6, where God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You see, God doesn't just kind of willy-nilly change his mind. If he's promised to do something, he will do it. He doesn't suddenly decide to consume you, but he's patient and steadfast uh, in his love to fulfill his purposes and promises towards you. But God's also one in the sense that he is exclusively God. And if he's one in the sense that he's the only God, then that means that there are no other capital G gods out there. It means that no other being. Nothing else in the entirety of the universe can challenge his his purposes and his promises for us. See, God alone is all-powerful, and God alone is all-present, and God alone is all-knowing. He alone is the unique God with one will and one purpose, which can never, ever be challenged, never overcome. When we understand God's oneness in this way, when we understand that he's one in his being, that he's literally one, and that he's the only God, then we begin to understand how this is the answer to why we should love God. It's the answer because it means that the same God who demands our love is the same God who first loved us. It means that the same God who demands our complete devotion to him is the same God who promised that Satan would be crushed in the Garden of Eden. It means that the same God who desires our love is the same God who promised that all the nations of the earth 
would be blessed through Abraham's descendants. It means that the same God who says, you shall love me, is the same God who took his enslaved, nobody people out of Egypt, aligning himself with these malnourished, beaten down slaves, and took down the mightiest nation in the world for them. It means that the same God who wants all of our hearts is the same God who gave his entire self for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. In other words, we should love God because his oneness reveals his gracious love towards us. His oneness, his purposes, his entire self is directed towards the love of his people. I mean, take a moment, take a moment to think about that. The God of the universe, the God who created everything and everyone has revealed himself in love to us. And he will always have love for us. So we should love God because he first loved us. But how are we to love God? Well, this is our second point this morning, so look with me at verse 5 in our text. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, the first thing we're told here is that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, and might. But these words, they don't really have the same meaning for for us as they did for the ancient Israelites. You know, in the ancient Near East, when you use the word heart, it referred to the seat of emotions or or feelings and, and even sometimes the intellect. For them, you know, it was more than just a physical organ inside the human body, but this word, it had certain weight behind it. It had gravity. And the same thing holds true for the word soul. Soul, it referred more to just some sort of like ethereal, ghost-like thing that's within every one one of us, but it, it referred to the whole inner self, personality, conscience, all that stuff. But I think probably the most interesting word out of these three is the word we find for for might. In Hebrew, this is the word me'od, which is usually translated as muchness. So when we come to our passage, we could transliterate it like this. Love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your muchness. You see, muchness is uh, an amplifying word that amplifies the ideas expressed in the last two words. It's showing us that we need to love God to the highest possible degree we can. Christopher Wright, uh, an Old Testament scholar, writes this about how we're to love God according to these words. To love God, then, with all your heart and with all your soul, means with your whole self, including your rationality, mental capacity, moral choices, and will, inner feelings and desires, and the deepest roots of your life. We are to love God with everything we have, with every inch of our being all the time. 
So how are we to love God? With all our heart, soul, and might. With everything we've got. And all of this means that our love isn't just some inner feeling that we have, but it's a whole life focus, which is the exact thing we see in verse 6 of our text. It says this, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. God's word, his commands for our life, they're to be etched on our hearts. It's in following his commands and being obedient to his will that we actually love God with our whole heart, soul, and might. Something we need to realize here is that that we can never, ever, ever complain that God hasn't shown us how to love him. How we love God is not left unclear for us in the Bible. Patrick Miller, he writes this in his commentary on Deuteronomy. It was never left unclear how Israel was to manifest love toward the Lord. In worship and obedience to the requirements of the covenant, the love of the Lord was to be demonstrated. You see, it's as we obey out of a worshipful response to God's love for us that we demonstrate love for God. And I think we kind of all understand this to be true just sort of intuitively. It's built into us to understand the concept that love needs to be demonstrated. You know, think about it like this for a minute. Imagine I go to my wife and I say, I love you so much, babe. You know, you're such an amazing woman. You're the best. But then I walk out the door to my apartment, head down to Granville Street, go into a strip club and just spend the rest of the day there. Would it be fair to say that my declaration of love for her was dishonest? Of course it would. Of course. Why? Because love is necessarily accompanied by demonstration. Love is an all-encompassing reality that requires real action to demonstrate its truthfulness. And when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, the place we go to find out how we demonstrate our love to Him is His Word. If we want to know God's will for our lives, if we want to know how we are meant to love Him, then we need to look no further than His Word. It's all in the Bible. And it's as we read this word, study it, pray through it, make it a part of our daily lives, tie ourselves to it, reflect upon it, and hear it preached that it becomes written on our hearts. You know, if we want to wholeheartedly love God, then simply put, we need to prayerfully meditate upon his word and then live out of the reality we see expressed in that word. Now, this isn't to make you feel guilty, but I want you to just pause and think about yourself for a minute. When you examine your heart, your motives, when you examine your behaviors and your affections, are they wholeheartedly committed to loving 
God? Do you love God with your whole heart, with your whole soul, and with all the might that you have? Do you do that? You know, to be honest, when I look at my own life, I know that this isn't true. I know I don't love God with my whole being and everything I am at every single moment of every single day. Sometimes I am a half-hearted man. And I have a, a feeling that some of you probably feel the exact same way. You see, we are so prone, so prone to love other things than God. We're so prone to turn away from him and look to other things to satisfy us in a way that only he ever will. You know, some of us here, we, we turn to things like comfort and ease of life, thinking that, that this is going to satisfy us. We use life hacks, right, to make our life easier and as easy as possible and as comfortable as possible. We make it our ultimate goal in life to see our sofa glorified. We read and we pray as little as possible because, let's face it, you know, these things, they take work, they're a little bit hard, and and that's just uncomfortable. Some of us here, you know, we turn to success and and acclaim, thinking that if I just get to that level, or if I just get to this status, or if I just get that job, then I'll be happy, then I'll be satisfied, then I'll feel fulfilled. And so we seek it out at all costs, even if it means we turn away from the Lord just a little bit to do so. And we begin neglecting our, our community groups. We begin neglecting our Sunday morning gatherings. We begin neglecting youth group the reading of scripture, prayer, and little by little by little, the devotion that we once had, it's completely consumed by the ordinary, mundane capitulation to idols in our life. You see, we are half-hearted people, and that is a really dangerous place to be. Just reflect upon Jesus' words to the church in Laodicea with me. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked half-heartedness will kill you. It's dangerous because you give in to a a little bit there, right? You give in to an idol a little bit there. You capitulate a little bit here. You hang out in that moral gray area a little bit over here, and next thing you know, you've become wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You've become good for nothing, and you'll just be completely spit out and forgotten but there's hope. The promise of Scripture is that when we turn to Jesus and when we recognize our sinful state and ask him for forgiveness, then we will be washed clean. And if you have faith in him and you trust in him and you believe in him, then you are also united to him and there is no condemnation for you. So my encouragement for you is turn to Christ. 
Seek out his forgiving love and he will take you in. Recognize his love for you and recognize God's abounding love for you. And as you reflect upon it, allow it to stir up your heart to a place of wholehearted devotion. Allow God's love to just remove your half-heartedness and be filled with his love till you, are whole, till you wholeheartedly love him. So we've looked at point one, why we should love God. We've looked at point two, how we should love God. Let's turn now and look at point three, what love does. What should we do with our love for God? Well, when we flip to verses 7 through 9 in our passage, I think we get our answer. Let's read those verses together. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Our love for God is not meant to stay with us, but is meant to go out into every area of our life. It's meant to go out to our families, right? It says we're to teach our children. It's meant to go out to the people we share our homes with. We're to talk about God's word in our houses. It's meant to go out into our relationships. We're to place God's word visibly in our life for people to see. It's meant to go into our society. We're to put it in public spaces so that people can hear God's word. You see, God's love is meant to be shared. In a really beautiful way, our love for God has this cascading effect. Whereas it builds up in us, it just overflows and starts to cascade down into the people of our lives, right? Into our families, our homes, our relationships, society, and all sorts of other areas. One of my joys of being the youth director at Christ City is the reality that I get to share and teach your kids about the love of Jesus. I love, love opening the Bible and just preaching and teaching. Like, that's where my heart is. That's what I just love doing. But as I was studying this text, I was convicted by the reality that I, I not only need to teach, but I also need to model God's love. You see, teaching people about the love of God, it's a 24-7 all-of-life commitment. It's not just words, but it's embodied. Kenda Dean, in her book titled Almost Christian, looks at what it is that's causing teenagers to leave the church en masse. And she points out that the number one thing we can do isn't try to cram kids' heads full of information, but it's to model love for God in the home. She writes, parents are called not to make their children godly. The law called upon Jewish parents to show their children godliness, to teach them, talk to them, embody for them their own delight in the Lord 24-7. Everything they needed for their children's faith formation, God had already given them. In the end, 
Awakening faith does not depend on how hard we press young people to love God, but on how much we show them that we do. Now, none of this is meant to say that we don't teach and preach the gospel. And we still need to do these things, and we need to do them well and often. But we do them while we embody the love of God. And as we embody the love of God, it has this cascading effect that flows out to our workplaces and then to our neighborhoods and then into our homes and to the nation and so on and so on. You know, the questions I asked at the beginning of this sermon about what it would look like if your boss turned to know Jesus and started loving him with their whole heart or the teachers or the nation's leaders and so on. It's actually the wrong question to be asking. Instead, we should be asking what would it look like if we loved God with all of our hearts? How would the people around us be transformed if we loved God with all of our heart, soul, and might? What would our workplaces start to look like if we loved God wholeheartedly? You know, what would school begin to look like this year if all the teachers at Christ City just committed to loving God with their whole heart, soul, and might? What would that look like? What would our neighborhoods begin to look like if we just loved God and started to share it with the homes around ours? What would it look like if we began to pray and to fast for the salvation of people in this city and then start sharing the love of God with them? What would that look like? You know, my guess is that God would do amazing things through that. You see, as love, as God's love fills us, we love God and that love overflows into every area of our life. Romans 5, 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God has poured His love into our hearts. His infinite, divine love that never, ever runs out is poured into our hearts and it just overflows to the people around us. When we turn from our sinfulness and then wholeheartedly turn to love God, that's what he does. When we turn to Jesus, he fills us with his love to overflow flowing. So love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word this morning. I pray that, Lord, we would be convicted of our half-heartedness. Lord, that you would remove the idols in our life uh, through your Holy Spirit that we might confess them to you and bring them forward and, and just ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for our capitulation to the ordinary mundane idols in our life. Father, I pray that we might be wholeheartedly devoted to you by turning to your son Jesus and just 
clinging to him and loving him and, and studying him in your word and, and praying, Lord, to know you more. And Father, I pray that this love that you have shown us might, might overflow in us to the people in our lives where we begin to love them, to love our neighbors, to love uh, the, the people in our care, to love the, the people at our workplaces. And Lord, that we might just share the gospel as we embody your love for us in that. Father, I pray that you would do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We're going to move into a time of communion together. So if you're in a house church, um, we'd encourage you to go gather the elements at this time. And as we participate in communion together this morning, let's just be reminded of the reality that this is a real demonstration of God's love for us. As we take the bread, let's reflect upon Jesus' words to us. This is my body, which is for you. It's for you that his body was broken. And as we take the cup, take the wine together, let's be reminded of Jesus' words to us. This cup, is the new covenant in my blood. It's his own blood that seals our salvation. There's no greater love than this. While we were still sinners, Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed for us. I mean, what an amazing reality that is. Let's celebrate this together as we take communion.